Welcome to Dharma Punks New York. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to be having another in-person gathering, which we're going to try to do once a month on Tuesday evenings, and we're going to continue to broadcast them on Zoom as well. And the next one will be not the first Tuesday, but the second Tuesday of September after our retreat, which is on August 31st to September 4th at Garrison Institute. Wonderful location, very easy to get to from New York. You just jump on the Metro North and you're there in an hour. The train practically takes you to the front door. Beautiful views of the Hudson, hiking trails, all that trying to sell you on going. I think we're up to 65 folks. There are scholarships available. Anyone who's even remotely associated with the world of education, please uh, feel encouraged to fill out the very simple form to get a scholarship. And we work with the institutions to keep the prices as low as possible. So even without the scholarship, uh, we've tried to make it affordable. Um, if you would like to support my work, which is entirely supported by donations, I don't charge for any of the classes or anything else I do. Um, the Venmo's Dharma Punks with an X, NYC. And on the website, dharmapunkswithanxnyc.com, there's all the other ways to keep me uh, with a roof over my head. So thank you for that. I'm going to be talking about uh, moods, how they're affected by neurotransmitters in the brain. And then I'm also going to be talking about alternative ways to address neural imbalances, meditations that perfectly suited for helping imbalances. In my experience, addressing mood disorders generally requires a multi-pronged approach, which involves lifestyle changes, meditation, interpersonal support, uh, nutrition, and sometimes can also be very helped with pharmaceutical support. So I don't think that we should view Buddhist practice as antithesis of contemporary psychiatry. I think they can work actually hand in hand. I'm going to be focusing tonight primarily on natural approaches and how each neurotransmitter affects mood. There's, I think, many benefits for knowing the basics. It helps us take challenges less personally. It also allows us to have informed conversations if we ever do want to speak with professionals or therapists or others about it. And it doesn't diminish the beauty of appreciating the mind if we also understand it from a science perspective. I was uh, personally got into heavily into the basics of neuropsychology back on a Buddhist retreat in 2003. And um, one of the teachers on the retreat was terrific, but another teacher on the retreat I couldn't handle. So as a way to uh, mitigate the disappointment, uh, I found the library that the center had, and in it was an introduction. For some reason, along with all the Buddhist books, they had an introduction to some of the basics of 
uh, clinical neuroscience. It was much more easy reading than that would suggest. And ever since then, over the last 20 years, I've just been uh, someone who likes to uh, read up on uh, new advances and new insights into not only neuropathology and uh, uh, neurology, but also just have a a, a conversational acquaintance with the different uh, neurotransmitters, neuropeptides, et cetera, and how they affect us. So neurotransmitters are chemicals that boost or inhibit the firing of electrical signals between one neuron and another. And that's what the brain is made up of. And that's what brings information to the brain are neurons. Um, Neurons that send are axons and neurons that receive signals are dendrites. And the space between them is called the synapse. And neurotransmitters are chemicals that either uh, increase signaling, uh, which are called excitory, or decrease the firing of neurons, which are called inhibitory. So if you're going to talk about neurotransmitters from the very beginning, you're talking about um, the ones that either produce more firing or less firing. And uh, I'm going to start by talking about the ones that are excitatory or uh, cause the brain to fire more. And there's no better place to start than probably the neurotransmitter most people are familiar with, uh, or one of the two they're most familiar with, which is dopamine. I'm sure you've heard of dopamine by now. Um exceedingly influential on human mood and behavior. Dopamine is extremely motivational. Uh, it's what allows us to focus sustained attention uh, along with a couple of other exciteries, but it allows us to focus very long sustained attention on an endeavor uh, that especially where we expect a reward or a survival advantage. Dopamine, besides being very motivational and raising excitement, it also stimulates what's called hedonic tone, i.e. it's very pleasurable. So all three are mixed together, excitement, focused attention, and pleasure. And uh, dopamine is uh, not only triggered when we expect a reward, but it's definitely highly triggered when we're in any endeavor where we can't figure out a pattern, where the rewards are unpredictable. So everything for shopping for sales, uh, gambling, scrolling on Instagram or dating apps or anything where you're hunting for something, but you don't know when or at what point you're going to find the reward. Like you're looking through, I guess, a large sample sale and you have a sense that somewhere in there is the uh, garment for me, but you don't know when or where you're going to find it. These are classic uh, dopamine enhancing experiences. 
And dopamine is a neurotransmitter where we have to get just right because there's severe ramifications for having too little or too much. When people have too little dopamine synaptically present, um, it produces what's called anhedonia, a lack of joy, a lack of reward, um, complete apathy and disengagement with like life, a lack of motivation. motivation. Um, and in additionally, as we talked about how dopamine heightens focused attention, when there's too little of it, it results in attention deficit disorders. This is why the medications that people are given to address ADD and ADHD uh, project dopamine to the frontal lobe, which allows the mind to focus concentration. So Adderall and Ritalin, for example, are amphetamine stimulants that uh, lead to a bombardment of dopamine in the frontal lobe. If you have too little dopamine, you're also going to have a very, not only a low sense of reward and motivation and apathy, but you're going to be depressed. And people who suffer monopolar depression are almost invariably given medications that raise dopamine, but you're also going to have a very low sex drive. So those are the significant considerations of having too little dopamine. But what happens if you have too much? Well, you're going to wind up with the exact opposite problems. You're going to wind up with psychotic mania, where you're not going to be able to reality test your thoughts. You're going to be prone to paranoia. So people who consume dopamine-enhancing drugs like methamphetamines and cocaine very often over time become manic, paranoid, uh, anxious, and the disorder uh, bipolar, um, it, which is associated with difficulty sleeping, mania, stress, increased energy, staying up for days, and then crashing into depression, uh, ex excessive sex drive is associated with having too much dopamine secreted at times. Dopamine is probably of the greatest concern because it's associated with pretty much the bulk of all addictions across uh, the human spectrum. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about alcohol or uh, uppers such as cocaine, meth, speed, or even opiates. Uh, uh, and not, on, not only those, but behavioral addictions such as uh, gambling, shopping, porn, food addictions, um, uh, you name it, all of these hijack the dopamine ventral tegmental, which is uh, part of the striatum. It hijacks it and leads to um, excessive uh, secretion of dopamine. But that's what leads to a real problem. It, dopamine is reabsorbed very quickly. It lasts in the synapses maybe a very short period of time. Uh, we're talking about half an hour. Um, and then, you know, after you buy the new gadget or you take the hit of cocaine 
I don't anymore do, <laughs> but if you did, you would have a very short-term boost of pleasure and excitement and a sense of every thought you had was wonderful. But then very quickly, your synapse, the, um, the uh, receptors would reabsorb it. And you'd, this would be followed by what's called a mirrored synap synaptic decline. So just as you had a great boost in dopamine, which made you excited and feel pleasure and feel powerful and on top of the world, very shortly afterwards, you're going to feel depressed, unmotivated, and um, in a state of significant uh, anhedonia, discomfort, lack of engagement. And so people will uh very quickly want to consume more of whatever substance or behavior led to that spike of dopamine so all addictive substances overload dopamine receptors so they become less sensitive to dopamine as well which means individuals who start with low amounts of gambling low amounts of shopping uh lower sex addiction or cocaine or amphetamine use over time need to take more and more to recreate the same initial feelings that the substances or, or behaviors originally gave them. And plus, once it diminishes, they're going to even have a greater decline into depression. So it creates the craving cycle and when the Buddha talked about tanha or craving, he's really pointing to this unquenchable thirst for short-term pleasures. And when the Buddha talked about short-term pleasures, he's talking about those short-term dopamine boosts that are followed by dukkha, suffering, distress, discomfort. Now, if you have chronically low dopamine, which means you'll have a mood disorder associated with depression, lack of motivation, it'll be difficult to get out of bed pretty much every day, you'll struggle feeling any sense of reward in life, then before seeking uh, the normal medications, you might consider trying some of the natural approaches to raising dopamine. And those would be um, vigorous exercise, not uh, moderate, but vigorous cardio for about 20 minutes every day. Uh, prolonged exposure to sunlight. That doesn't mean you have to expose your skin to skin cancer, but you want to see sunlight. And that means going somewhere, even sitting in the shade, but being exposed to the presence of sunlight you want to cut down on saturated fats, which will help with dopamine production. Um, there are some very safe uh, supplements, tyrosine and phenylalanine. And uh, I mean, it's pretty much safe. I mean, I'm sure that in excess, people can turn any safe endeavor into something that's not safe. Phenylalanine is a precursor for dopamine. And they both have been clinically shown to raise dopamine levels. So um, I would 
suggest those. And then if all else fails on the market, there are what's known as dopamine reuptake inhibitors like Welbutrin that will raise your dopamine levels. And in conjunction with exercise and um, sunlight and meditation practices we'll talk about later, will help address significantly depression. Now, if on the other hand, your dopamine levels are way too high, you're far too um, uh, prone to manic states, you have a higher uh, constant sex drive that's never satiated, you have issues around um, manic intrusive thoughts, then, um, and we'll talk about this more, but raising your serotonin levels will actually help diminish the dopamine. And I'll talk about the supplements and practices that will do that when we get to serotonin. When people have extremely high dopamine uh, levels at times and then plummet, which creates uh, bipolar disorder, uh, they'll very often be prescribed atypical antipsychotics like Abilify and Seroquel and Latuda and Risperdal and all those, Zyprexa and all of those medications. So if you ever see those, they're, um, they block dopamine. So the next uh, excitery, and I'm only going to spend a little bit of time on this one, is glutamate. Glutamate is one of the most common excitatory neurotransmitters. It's um, what is deeply embedded in learning and uh, also focused attention as well as dopamine. Um, if you have far too much over a long period of time, it will block GABA, which helps reduce anxiety. Um, but if you have too little glutamate, you're going to be prone to exhaustion, irritation, and low concentration. Um, a lot of people during the pandemic uh, suffered something called Zoom fatigue. I know I did from doing all of the counseling on Zoom and uh, FaceTime. And Zoom fatigue or fatigue from using what we call misery rectangles, looking at uh, squares on computers or iPhones, um, uh, results in sustained focused attention to a small space, which chews up glutamate. And over time, the, we just can't produce enough glutamate to fuel focusing attention on a small area. And then what happens is the sleep neurotransmitter adenosine raises, which blocks dopamine, and then people get depressed and fatigued. There is no way, no supplements uh, that can, uh, and even there's no pharmaceutical solution that I'm aware of that raises glutamate. The only exercise, and once again, vigorous exercise, as well as reducing long-term uh, expenditure on computers and iPhones and on screens will help regulate glutamate. Um, the more we spend time on online meetings without taking a break, going outside, allowing non-focused attention, which is what's known as 
uh, or now non-narrow attention, but uh, global attention to kick in will help restore glutamate over time. So if you really want to raise your energy levels and lower fatigue, um, one of the first things these days to consider is taking regular breaks away from any kind of screen especially a laptop or uh, a smartphone. Norepinephrine is the brain's version of adrenaline. It's also excitatory and during stressful, challenging events, it not only motivates us to confront an issue, that's why people when they get into fights experience spikes of norepinephrine as well as testosterone, uh, it mobilizes us to act and instills a degree of efficiency and efficacy and agency and confidence. It also, like dopamine, focuses our attention along with uh, glutamate. So those are the big three when it comes to sustained attention. Um, when people have chronic stress, uh, norepinephrine is constantly activated, leading to excessive arousal, insomnia, and over long-term instability. But if you have too little uh, norepinephrine, you're also going to experience fatigue, attention deficit, and also a likelihood of greater anxiety. So many new uh, anti-anxiety medications, which are known as SNRIs, balance both serotonin to reduce anxiety and norepinephrine to maintain a sense of efficacy and uh, attention and motivation. And um, so uh, it plays a big a role in uh, helping protect us from anxiety because it creates that sense of that I can do something about things in my world. If you want to raise your norepinephrine levels, you would set daily small tasks and achieve them, which would lead to a sustained secretion of, of adrenaline throughout the day. Like so many of the excitatory neurotransmitters, you'd exercise vigorously and you would want to consume chocolate. Uh, many people don't digest chocolate very well, but chocolate actually raises norepinephrine levels. And um, uh, <clears throat> if you really have a deficit of uh, norepinephrine and you have attention deficit disorder, one of the safer uh, medications much safer than uh, a, um, Adderall and Ritalin is a drug called Stratera, which primarily doesn't cre uh, target dopamine as much as it targets norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is not an addictive neurotransmitter like dopamine and cortisol can be. So moving right along to the last excitatory We've so far covered dopamine, the reward, glutamate, the energy, kind of the gasoline of the brain, norepinephrine, which motivates us to action, uh, mobilizes us, instills a sense of agency, and uh, works hand in hand with dopamine. The fourth is the classic stress hormone, cortisol. During times of prolonged stress, the body releases the cortisol after releasing 
adrenaline. So when we first are faced with a challenge, a threat, or, or you're playing a sports game, or you're taking a quiz, or you're in a situation where all the attention of the room goes on you, you're teaching in front of people, your adrenaline levels are going to be higher. But if the over time, if the stress or the activity isn't resolved and you have to keep maintaining this kind of excessively focused, readying attention to stay vigilant and alert for very long periods, then you're going to be releasing cortisol. Cortisol helps us stay alert because it clears out adenosine, which I mentioned previously, I think, and is the neurotransmitter that allows us to sleep. So along with um, melatonin. So cortisol blockades adenosine and it keeps us alert for threats, which is why at times uh, cortisol also like dopamine can be addictive. Um, but unlike dopamine, which is triggered for rewarding endeavors that give us a reward at the end of it, like shopping or um, looking up uh, people, I suppose, on a dating app or um, FaceTime, where there might be something positive at the end of it. Cortisol is secreted when we're in scary movies for a long time or long time. You rode a lot of roller coasters for a long time, your adrenaline would eventually give way to uh, cortisol. And so it can be addictive. And it, but also uh, long term experiences where people are looking for kind of unconsciously looking for negative or challenging, not rewards, but the opposite, like kind of where you're on the lookout for threats. So people, when they're stalking their exes on FaceTime, would have pro prolonged uh, elevated levels of cortisol. When people are scrolling for bad news on social media or news sites, or they're watching Fox News for hours on end, their cortisol levels skyrocket. Um, when people lie in bed obsessing about all or catastrophizing about all the bad things that could happen to them, once again, cortisol levels. So cortisol and dopamine have a lot in common, but dopamine is associated with reward, whereas cortisol is associated with being alert and vigilant for threats. Cortisol triggers the release of glucose or sugar from your liver which gives you fast energy during times and stress, but over, turn is, over time is associated with diabetes. It changes your heart race. It stops digestion um, so that you can shunt blood to your, uh, your limbs. So over time, it's associated with digestive disorders. And while it limits inflammation in the short term, it also is associated with weakened immune systems, cancer, and all kind, and heart disease. So it's by far and away, when it's in excess, the single most harmful in terms of the physical 
effects along with excessive dopamine but cortisol has huge ramifications on our body's well-being uh, excessive dopamine from addiction is going to be associated with mood plummets depression but it's not going to be taking the same effect on your body that cortisol will so it's very important uh, to address chronic stress lowering cortisol means uh, prioritizing reducing the amount of stressors or obligations in our life even if that's a painful thing to do um, it's very important plant-based diets long sustained outbreaths are parasympathetic and that has been shown clinically to reduce cortisol levels just breathe out as long as you can or stimulate your vagal nerve lie down with a hand on your heart center and that will raise vagal tone which will in turn will reduce um, cortisol levels reduce your caffeine intake to no more than two cups per day um, adequate sleep and if your cortisol levels are very high you have chronic stress then selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors which raise serotonin has been shown to be effective of course so that's a tour of the excitatory neurotransmitters dopamine which is reward um norepinephrine which keeps us alert and mobilizes us to face a challenge and also protects against uh makes us feel that we have efficacy in the world um dopamine is responsible for our the bulk of our addictions because it's present for a very short term then when it plummets we go into a real depressive hole so it's very easy to get into that uh raising it and then plummeting and then raising it the uh, constant eating of sugar which raises and then plummets um glutamate which is the fuel for the brain and cortisol which it helps us stay vigilant for a long time in stressful situations so let's go to some of the inhibitory neurotransmitters and the inhibitory neurotransmitters are um, the most well-known uh, is serotonin. It, uh, is, uh, it regulates our mood by inhibiting the intrusive uh, thoughts that cycle repeatedly and for, through the default mode network of the brain. It's anxiolytic. It reduces anxiety. It helps regulate and restore appetite and helps with digestion. It helps produces melatonin so we get enough sleep. Uh, it stimulates the production of new brain cells, which means it's neurogenerative. And, um, and as a secondary effect, it helps combat depression as well. When people take serotonin they call them antidepressants but serotonin reuptake inhibitors really in essence are about reducing uh anxiety the dopamine reuptake inhibitors which raise dopamine are about really primarily addressing depression so too little 
uh, serotonin has many, many negative effects, anxiety disorders and intrusive spiraling thoughts, especially conditions like obsessive compulsive disorder and uh, prolonged anxiety uh, disorders are really some of the clear manifestations of not enough dopamine. If you have too much which means you're probably taking a too high dose of a, of an SSRI, you're probably not going to naturally have too much serotonin. But if you take too high a dose of a neurotrans, of um, like a Prozac or a Zoloft or um, uh, one of the other SSRIs, then you might experience a diminished sex drive. Uh, you might have such uh, mood regulation that it'll be mood blunting, mood blunting, where you're not going to feel much of an emotional response to anything. So too little serotonin in your emotions going to be all over the place, but too too, too little serotonin, your emotions are going to be uh, very dysregulated, but too much, and you're going to be blunted. And... Um, there's a very rare condition where if people take ex very high doses of anti-anxiety meds and also take um, uh, hallucinogens like LSD, MDMA, uh, ayahuasca, the combinations can lead to serotonin syndrome, which is associated with seizures. And in very, very, very rare instances can be very, very dangerous and even deadly unless it's quickly addressed. But people tend to be, quite frankly, too concerned about serotonin syndrome. It's actually a pretty rare uh, condition. It's not as prevalent as individuals think. If you want to raise your serotonin levels and reduce your anxieties, the first thing you're going to want to do is join a community or what do whatever it takes to build up your social connections, your interpersonal life. Right after all sustained engagements with others, where especially we feel seen, understood, uh, validated, where people make good eye contact and express empathetically mirroring emotional responses, they're going, your serotonin levels are going to climb. Uh, massage has been shown to, because you're being touched by another human being, raises uh, serotonin levels. Creative exercises, which are associative, uh, stimulate serotonin in the right hemisphere. So drawing, painting, playing an instrument, um, listening to music raises your serotonin levels. Meditation has been shown to be very efficient at raising serotonin levels. And so um, the meditation we talk about in a little while is going to be focused on that. If you, um, and of course, people who have lowered serotonin levels are going to be prone, are going to be people who are isolated, uh, who engage in compulsive, addictive behaviors like scrolling, shopping, pornography food consumption, amphetamines, and so on and so forth, people who eat excessive amount of carbs. If you want to raise uh, serotonin naturally without taking the classics, um, uh, 
uh, sertralines and all that, uh, you probably want to consider daily taking 5-HTP, which is or um, oh, I'm blocking the other name, but 5-HTP is a precursor for serotonin. And raising serotonin levels is a very slow endeavor. We're talking about a month. You're never going to take anything that's going to raise your serotonin levels very high, very quickly. Uh, even if you take a classic uh, anti-anxiety med like Prozac or Paxil or Zoloft or Lexapro, you're going to have to wait three weeks or a month before you're going to really start to experience the benefits. Anything sooner, and it's just a placebo effect. But 5-HTP uh, has been clinically shown to be a natural way to raise um also moderate exercise, I should mention as well, not vigorous, which raises dopamine and glutamate, but moderate exercise like a lazy uh, jog or something like that. GABA is the brain's anti-anxiety med even stronger than um, uh, serotonin. Uh, it really blunts neural firing, um, especially reduces firing in the sympathetic nervous system. Uh, hence, is it lowers cortisol, it promotes sleep, uh, it relaxes muscles. It has the exact opposite effects of glutamate and norepinephrine in that it allows us to basically unwind, become less mobilized, less anxiously alert. And um, it's the reason why people love alcohol and benzodiazepines, because those are substances that bombard the brain and act and bind up the GABA uh, receptor so that GABA stays present longer in the synapses. Um, those are, of course, benzos and alcohol tend to be very addictive and lead to very diminished results and getting off of alcohol or benzos can be very dangerous. I'm not saying that all benzos in a very short-term use uh, with anxiety disorders are terrible, but uh, those substances block stage four sleep, so you don't form lasting memories while you're using them. Um, and they can be lethal when used with opioids, so many people can have overdoses. Um, if you want to raise your GABA levels, meditation, once again, has been shown to balance them and lead to sensitivity in GABA receptors, and also theanine, which is secreted from uh, green tea, very safe, and Theanine, you have to take a lot of it, like 400 milligrams, but it will raise your GABA levels and it's not going to have the same effect of having a drink or taking um, a clonopin, but it's sustainable. It will last. It will, and it is naturally uh, secreted and it is not addictive. So you can safely take theanine. And uh, it's a, it is one of the better supplements out there. Um, endorphins. 
our opioid systems produce pain relief, uh, also help with sexual activity. Um, many people think endorphins uh, also are the reason why exercise produces mood boosts, but actually endorphins not don't actually do that. They're they're mostly in the body. It's anandamides, which they they are released in conjunction with that actually produce the bliss people feel after they run a marathon or they engage in really long-term sustained exercise. Um, endorphins turn off dopamine craving. So people who come into uh, NA and um, into 12-step uh, programs who have addictions very often will uh, you start uh, doing long distance running. Uh, and one of the reasons they do that is one, it stops self uh, fixated thoughts, which are stressful inherently. Uh, but two, uh, it actually leads to the secretion of both endorphins and anandamides, which raise mood. So if you want to raise your endorphins, which also help uh, maintain constant dopamine levels, uh, you want to have both positive social connections, lots of cardio, uh, music, once again, chocolate, and those are um, also... Uh, watching funny movies, prolonged periods of laughing um, is associated with raising your endorphin levels as well. We're very, now we're going to reach the end uh, with oxytocin. Oxytocin is the love hormone. It amplifies the effects of interactions, empathy, trust, uh, postcoital bliss, um, it also reduces anxiety disorders. It's released uh, during breastfeeding, which is why uh, it's so reducing of anxiety and external alertness that mothers can continue to breastfeed their baby while fire alarms are going off and smoke detectors are going off. Um, and if you want to raise that feeling of... Um, being in love with everything, that kind of empathy that people with oxytocin levels experience, they, the sense of really being safe in the world. You want to hug someone with their permission. <laughs> you don't want to go up against someone's permission. Don't do that. You want to listen attentively, empathize. You want to pet a cat or a dog. You want to soak in a hot tub. And meta-meditation has been shown to raise oxytocin levels. Uh, I think Barbara Fredrickson was the one who did lots of research on the effects, uh, the positive effects of meta-meditation. So to summarize, our brains um, evolved to be more stimulated and alert for our safety than they evolved to be satisfied and relaxed. We are creatures that um, tend to be prone to addiction to dopamine, uh, anything that hijacks it, anything that promises a reward we can, or a survival advantage, uh, winning something, accruing something, uh, food, sex, 
accumulating more will lead to dopamine, which leads to over time mood dysregulation, the highs and then the plummeting lows. Um, as a species, we the evolution didn't really care about how happy and relaxed we were. It wanted us to be safe. So we're also exceedingly prone to uh, excessive cortisol levels, stress hormones that keep us alert and vigilant. And as a species, due to our uh, the the addictive cortisol that is secreted by self centered thought, we can become very addicted to catastrophizing dark thoughts about what's going to happen to us in the future or what other people think about us. So the beauty of spiritual practice, especially Buddhist practice, is that it addresses this neural imbalance of evolution. It reduces compulsive D2 activation, especially Buddhism, which calls for actively renouncing our short-term pleasures that just bombard with uh, dopamine secretion. And Buddhist practice raises serotonin and oxytocin through, um, one, meditation itself, but to uh, enhance positive social interactions with others because we take a vow and the precepts to be harmless. Um, it helps, uh, and these help reduce intrusive thoughts, anxiety, and maintain calm. Meditation also raises GABA levels when, to help prevent anxiety. So what are the meditations that really help um, address the inherent uh, uh, tendency to gravitate towards excitatory neurotransmitters that keep us up, overexcited, over alert, over vigilant, overstimulated, uh, at the expense of being able to be calm, have our moods regulated to reduce anxiety in our life, and to feel more connected with our world. Well, this is, leads us to what's called concentration exercises. While mindfulness exercises are wonderful as well, but concentration exercises such as the Anapanasati, the sustained awareness of breathing, whether we're breathing in and out and learning how to use the breath to uh, relax the body, relax our feelings, relax and, and lead to sustained moods and attention um, are the single most suitable meditations in the canon that helps regulate our neural uh, environment. Um, especially um, by focusing attention, what we're doing is we are going to be uh, on something that is not unpredictable, but focusing attention on something that's predictable, like the breath or the sounds of your, if you're by the waves or the sounds of uh, traffic in the distance, or just observing the, the subtly shifting changes in the body or uh, holding in the mind 
images of people you'd like to send loving kindness to or repeating a very simple phrase may i be happy may i be peaceful may i be free of stress and suffering all of these are associated with mood regulation and what they do these meditations do um is they lead to just enough prolonged secretion of dopamine that we stay motivated and alert but not enough of a secretion that there's ever a plummet in the afterward in the aftermath nor is it an addictive amount so uh it's really one of the most profoundly uh positive tools we have in our arsenal to regulate mood over time to regulate um uh, neurotransmitter imbalances to to have a unconditional uh process in our life that is neurally restorative and also helps us maintain a kind of balanced alertness but a relaxed attention so i hope that tonight's talk was of some interest and now what i'm going to do is lead you in a very simple version of the anapanasati and at the very end we're going to switch to some meta to raise oxytocin levels and hopefully with this meditation you will have an example of how to auto regulate your own um your some of the imbalances that accrue in all of our brains so thank you for listening and what i'd like to encourage you to do is to find a really comfortable seated position find the most comfortable seated position you can the only caveat is to not be so comfortable as to fall asleep and in the uh theravadan insight tradition which i practice in we generally close our eyes to help focus the attention on our internal experience another reason why as a species we tend to be are overstimulated in prolonged sympathetic nervous system states where we're also chronically stressed is because um when we try to focus attention inwardly we very often get lost in self-oriented thoughts which lead to default mode stress so meditation is a wonderful way to train us to bring attention to our eternal experience but not in a way that allows us to be hijacked by thoughts but instead to use internal um interoceptive attention to reduce stress and anxiety and fixated thoughts 
So first see if you can find in your body the the sensations associated with breathing in and breathing out. And the sole goal is simply to survey your body from the top of your head to your feet and just find some area in your body where it's very apparent by the sensations themselves, whether you're breathing in or whether you're breathing out. As the Buddha instructed, know if you're breathing in and know if you're breathing out. For me, I like not so much any single area, but I follow the movement of energy from my belly and my abdomen up to my chest. So when I'm breathing in, I feel this subtle movement of energy up my torso, my abdomen expands, and then my chest. And then with the out-breath, there's a subtle sense of caving in or release of the chest. And then there's this release of energy, which drops back down towards the abdomen. So energy tends, in my case, to move up with the in-breath and then down with the letting go of the out-breath. So just for a little while, see if you can find, for some people, it's just the nose, the nostrils, feeling the breath, the air moving in and out. Some people, it's just the chest, or maybe it's just a vague sense of knowing when they're breathing in or breathing out. I don't think there's a right or wrong way. Some people are very adamant that it has to be one place or the other, but I haven't read anywhere in the Pali Canon where the Buddha said, you have to pay attention to the breath in the chest or the belly or the nose or the mouth or anything like that. So just know if you're breathing in or breathing out. And every time you stray from these sensations, don't worry about it. Just calmly bring your awareness back.
So if you're feeling tired, you might want to focus on your in-breaths and try to make them as full, complete, exaggerated. So bringing in a lot of oxygen to the brain, really vigorous in-breath. On the other hand, if your brain is firing a little bit too much, your nervous system is a little bit too alert, stressed, anxious, you want to relax, then you want to extend your out-breaths, which are parasympathetic. So long exhalations, much longer than the in-breaths. And if you just feel that you're in a good place, just keep the in-breaths and the out-breaths roughly the same length. So you can count to four on the in-breath, then count to four on the out-breath. But again, if you want to relax, you want your out-breath to be much longer, not pushing out the air, just gently release it. And if you want to be more alert, then you want to focus on bringing more air in and just releasing the breath quickly. So, at this point, we want to use the breath to make the body feel as comfortable as we can. So, you can do this by just bringing the breath to any area of the body that feels tight, contracted, and then just breathe up from slightly below the stress to an area right above the stress. And then as you breathe out, release from the top of the 
painful area to the very bottom. So for instance, if you have a pain in your upper back, bring your attention to an area just below and above that pain, and then just imagine with the in-breath that you're bringing energy up and through the discomfort. And then as you breathe out, see if you can relax all of the tightness, tension, muscle contraction around that area. And also just breathe in a way that feels good in your body in general. Try to involve as much of your body as you can. In one of the instructions, the Buddha says, breathing to soothe the entire body fabrication. So just your awareness of your entire body is soothed by your breath. How can you do that? Try different breaths and see what works best for you. And now we want to breathe in a way that produces more positive feelings. Feelings are those events in the front of the torso, the stomach, the chest, the face that give a kind of ongoing feedback to whether we're comfortable or uncomfortable. Uh, with the any situation we're in. So when people feel uncomfortable, their bellies seem to tighten, their chests contract, their jaws clench. But when they feel positive and uh, 
they feel comfortable feelings, the muscles tend to release. Any clenching tends to relax. So to do this one way is we find some, uh, simply by breathing out longer can help. But also if you find a sensation that feels really pleasurable in the front of your body, just see if you can spread the the pleasure with each in-breath, just slightly expanding. If you find like an ease in the, the palms of your hands or in your the front of your belly or maybe in your eyes or forehead, just breathe in and slightly expand. Bring awareness to that ease and spread it. And then with each out-breath, see if you can relax even more into this comfort, just suffusing ease and comfort through your body. And for the last step of this meditation we'll do today, um, the Buddha talked of breathing in a way that gladdens the mind, that uplifts our mood. So imagine you can now find... a sense of your mind, just observe it. Does your mind feel expansive or contracted, light or dark? 
Does it feel settled, filled with energy or distant? It's the quality of attention. What kind of filter are you bringing to every experience? And then imagine with every breath, the energy is lightening and expanding your awareness. And with every out breath, a little bit of the stress or agitation is dropping out through the bottom of the mind. Slowly breathing in and out to just gladden the mind. So lastly, just bring to mind one individual today you'd like to send loving kindness to. Either hold their image in your mind or their name. And just as you visualize this person, it's not so much about the words, it's just the feelings that you're sending to them. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be free of stress and suffering. See if you can cultivate a smile and just wish peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering to this person. And then bring to mind an image of yourself at any age you choose.
maybe yourself as a child or yourself today or in the future. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. May I be free of stress and suffering. And so at this time, you're invited to return your attention to <laughs> the screen 